Acts chapter 2. Listen to the word of the Lord. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee. And yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. And then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. Always makes me chuckle. <laughs> no, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your, your old men will dream dreams. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike. And they will prophesy, and I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. And on and on this sermon goes, and I'll just summarize the rest in a moment, but this is the word of the Lord. Here's the progression of Acts chapter 2. They pray. The Spirit of God comes and blows them out of the house, speaking unknown languages. Then the onlookers are confused and say, what does this mean? While others say, no, they're drunk. Then Peter says, no, 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 this is God. Remember how you rejected and killed Jesus? Yeah. 
Well, that was basically the worst thing you could have done. And now God's raised him to life and made him Lord. And then they say, ah, what are we going to do? And then Peter says, you're going to do four things. You're going to think differently, repent. You're going you're to agree with God. You're going to get dunked under the water as a sign that you're all in. And you're going to get filled with the Holy Spirit too. Oh, and by the way, this is not just for you. It's for all your little ones, your kids. And then 3,000 of them respond right then and there. They say, uh-huh, we're doing this. And they get saved. And after that, after that, the church dramatically expanded in one day. Experiences a time where when the apostles put their hands on people who have problems, the problems disappear instantaneously. And the whole church gathers daily to listen to the apostles' teaching and to pray, and then they meet house to house for fellowship and to share, and gratitude comes on them so much that they became generous, and nobody goes hungry. Nobody's missing shoes. That seems like a big deal to me. Like Nobody goes hungry or is missing shoes. And then every single day, new families, seeing what's happening here, join this fledgling movement like each day, day after day. Like no wonder Acts chapter 2, we view as the DNA of the church. No wonder so many of us look at Pentecost as one of the most exciting days in human history. I gave Dustin and Katie a little assignment this week. You knew that was, how did you know that was coming? And the assignment was, what is baptism? So I want to talk just a little bit about John the Baptist baptizing in water and what John the Baptist said about Jesus. In Luke 3.16, when he's being asked, you know, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? He says, no, 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 I'm not. He says this. I baptize with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but Jesus, his ministry won't be like mine. He baptizes you with God, not water. He fills you with God. He dunks you, he immerses you in God. Interesting. If I could just compare and contrast John's water baptism and Jesus' spirit baptism is, in water baptism, there's an emptying. John's ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord, to get the, to get the stuff to get the greed, to get the sin, to get the lust, to get the jealousy, to get the pride, to get everything out of the way, to, to, to everything that's lifted up against the real relationship with God gets, gets pushed out of the way and everything that's, that's empty and overly insecure and self-defeating and too discouraged and too depressed and no, oh, I can't and I can't and blah, blah, and all the excuses, all that gets filled in and you make a level path. John's whole ministry was one to prepare the way 
for Jesus so that when Jesus comes, what he's filling is what has been emptied by John's ministry. And still repentance and the filling of the Spirit works this way even in the life of us now. There are times when the Spirit will inspire us to go through a season of preparation for a season of fulfillment. It's not an issue of bad versus good ministries. It's an issue of preparation and fulfillment. So in John, John's baptism of water is an emptying. Jesus' baptism with the Spirit is a filling. John's baptism of water is us declaring we need something else, God. And Jesus' baptism is, here you go. John's baptism is something old is dying. And Jesus' baptism is something new is living. John's baptism is what God asks us to do, but Jesus' baptism is something only God can do. John's baptism is us humbling ourselves before God, and Jesus' baptism is God exalting us in due time. Again, it's not bad versus good. It's preparation versus fulfillment. So back to the text. In Acts chapter 2, verse 12, the people ask the right question, and that is, what does this mean? Hey, Carrie, can y'all shut that door? Thank you. The glass is there to provide a safe, permeable membrane for people with squawky kids to be able to still hear the sermon without feeling insecure about us being distracted. You like that permeable membrane? <laughs> you try getting through that permeable membrane, it's hard glass. So what does all this mean? And Peter, in order to answer what, is, what does this mean, he quotes Joel. He quotes Joel that's, that talks about, in the last days I will pour out my spesh, my, my, spesh, my spirit on all flesh. I guess if we try to take that whole sentence and squish it into one word, it becomes spesh. <laughs> in the last days. Well, I guess we must be in the last days. The last days. What last days? The last days when God makes a new covenant. I guess we must be in the new covenant. This is the, this Pentecost thing where people come bursting out of the prayer closet into the public space, speaking in unknown languages. Peter says, it's, it's the last days, it's go time. God's doing a totally new thing. He's pouring out his spirit on all flesh, which means the last days have arrived, which means the new covenant is now inaugurated. In other words, the Spirit is confirming some things. It's confirming Jesus' lordship. Acts 2.33 talks about part of Jesus' exaltation is now he's in this position where the Father has given him the ability or given him the prerogative to pour out the Spirit on whomever he wills. So it's actually Jesus who decides who gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an interesting idea? And that Peter says, this thing you're seeing with the Spirit poured out is the proof that Jesus is operating as Lord right now. What does this mean? It means there's a new and living way to God. No longer the old covenant sacrifices, the old temple and the old priesthood, but now there's this access point simply through Jesus and it's operating in fullness. It means that God's presence is now out of the box, which we heard Bill Vanderbush talk as he drew on the board the Ark of the Covenant where God chose to let his glory dwell. But now, now, what you're seeing is 
God's out of the box, and no longer is the Holy of Holies that box, but it's the human heart. No longer is the temple a building in Jerusalem, but it's the people of God, Jew and Gentile, whoever calls on the Lord. Now, it's God's, what, what does this mean? It means that God's promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him is being fulfilled through Jesus, who is the true seed of Abraham. What does this mean? It means that the true Israel is now being formed, composed of all the nations, whoever becomes connected to God through Messiah Jesus. And I would just like to make some general observations about how the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes on prayer. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems to me we, we have gatherings, and I've, I've been a part of church gatherings where the moment we actually lay hands on each other and start to pray, the Spirit comes in a greater measure. I've preached heavy, heavy, like preach, 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 then like during a fast. I remember distinctly fasting one day, preaching, and after the sermon, I went down here and Lisa Chup came up and I put a hand on her and as soon as I put a hand on her, the Spirit came in power. I don't know what the deal is. I'm not explaining to you how it happens or why it happens, but I know that it is true. The Spirit comes on prayer. The Spirit comes on saints gathered in pursuit of the one thing. And the one thing is not grow the church. The one thing is not get something, some human cause going. The one thing is not like boost your denomination. The one thing is never a human cause, whether it's religious or just plain human. The one thing is the Psalm 27 verse 4, the, the only cry of a born again heart that seems to have this level of influence with God. One thing I seek and one thing I'm asking God and that's what I'm also going to seek. It's to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and meditating in his temple. It's the one thing that God's spirit seems to come on is a genuine pursuit of God. Not causes, not, not, not trying to boost our name or our reputation. Not trying to get something going, not a fundraiser or a morale boost. No, a hunger for God brings the spirit. A hunger for God. So these saints up in the upper room seeking one thing, God, and he comes. The spirit only flows in the shadow of the cross. The spirit of God retreats from legalism. He retreats from religious earning. He retreats from straining and striving. He retreats from we, what we do to contribute to his cause. And he comes in the shadow of the cross. The spirit flows where grace covenant is proclaimed clearly and Christ's righteousness is trusted in instead of mine. The spirit flows in the place where I stand in his mercy and I extend his mercy. If I step outside of his mercy and retain people's sins, I step out of the grace of God. I step out of the anointing of the Holy Spirit and I dry up. The spirit only flows in the shadow of the cross. And he brings resurrection life. He never comes on earning when the Spirit comes on fasting, it's because the fasting is born out of faith in the finished work of Jesus. He never comes on fasting that's rooted in trying to contribute something to God. 
He doesn't come when we sing louder. He comes when we trust. He doesn't come when we beg more. He comes when we trust. He doesn't come when we pray unless that prayer is rooted in trusting in a promise he made. He comes on believing prayer. Jesus said you don't cut yourself and repeat a lot of words like the pagans do to convince God. He's just good. He never comes on earning. Galatians 3 says, Paul says, what's wrong with y'all? Don't you realize? Did you receive the spirit because you were really, really good Christians? Or because you trusted this message was true and God's love was real and Jesus was the proof? So he says, after beginning with the spirit, you started with what he did, with what God did, with who God is, and trust, and grace, and faith, and promise. It's all him, it's all his goodness. He's the gospel. After starting with this, now you're trying to become the gospel? You're trying to, you're trying to add to it? You're trying to become something that will earn this thing? You gotta stay rooted in the same thing you started in, because he doesn't come. Grace is not the opposite of effort, but it is the opposite of earning. I just think it's interesting that when the Spirit of God comes, this is my, again, this is just a personal observation, he doesn't come because we preach and sing about the Spirit coming. And when the Spirit comes, the sermon isn't so much about the Spirit as it is about Jesus. I'm I'm for preaching and teaching about the Spirit of God so that we have doctrinal correctness and clarity in our brains, but what I'm saying is the Spirit loves, what he loves to come upon is bringing this gospel message home. That you're loved. That the blood of Jesus has been accepted by God on high as the appropriate atonement for sin and you can be squeaky clean and have a perfect relationship with God. The Spirit loves to come on that message. A lot more than he loves to come on somebody standing up and begging him to come. That's what I've noticed. He comes to make what's already accomplished our experience rather than us praying just for experiences. I'm just telling you what I've seen. I'm a, I'm, I pray, come Holy Spirit. You got, I do, I pray. I pray, come more, more. I pray more. What I'm telling you is I've seen him come more heavily on the simple proclamation of what Jesus has done and who the Father is than on us camping out. Oh, please, 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 come more, more, more. Let's sing harder. The Spirit flows as an expression of sonship, bringing love home to hearts and removing orphan mindsets and removing orphan lifestyles from us. The spirit flows in us as a river, not a lake. In other words, it can never be contained in a life. It can never be contained in one church. It can never be contained in one community. If you actually have a move of God that is participated, partnered with, you will always be swept out of your own smallness, outside of your group, outside of yourself, outside of relating to those who are like you and who like you. I mean, again, if you only relate to those who are like you and who do like you, meaning they actually like you, like, oh, I like that guy, then it's not gospel community. It's just worldliness with Bible verses tacked on. 
but he's flowing as a river, not a lake. He empowers worship and mission, always. In fact, the, the movement of worship is always an act of mission. And every genuine mission is an act of invitation into worship. And the spirit comes on worship. And I don't just mean singing. I mean hearts adoring the perfections of God. I already said he comes on the pursuit of the one thing. That's worship. The Spirit creates movement. It's impossible to come into a place and be filled with the Spirit of God and be unmoved. Impossible. Now, you might be in a place where the Spirit is moving, but be unmoved because you're not encountering God. But it's impossible to be filled with the Holy Spirit and and not be moved. Moved. He gets us unstuck by moving us. We see him as he is afresh and stuff starts to move. The Holy Spirit comes, I notice, just just look at Acts 2 and see if I'm right or wrong. Or look at the whole book of Acts and see if I'm right or wrong. Every time the Spirit of God comes upon somebody, their mouth goes moving. Something comes out of their mouth every time. It's either tongues or prophecy or praise. Something starts coming out and it's all good things about God. Every time, every time the Holy Spirit comes, he opens our mouth with praise and testimony. When the Spirit comes in Acts chapter two and and even today, he empowers us to fill this ends of the earth cultural mandate that goes all the way back to Genesis one. Maybe I'll talk about that as a whole sermon one of these days. When the Spirit comes, he confronts unbelief. He confronts it. He doesn't skate it under the rug. He confronts it. When the Spirit comes, he initiates the crisis of deciding for or against. It looks like he divides communities, but he doesn't. He just reveals the divisions that are latent and and hidden. He confronts unbelief. He initiates a crisis decision moment. He pushes the saints out of the Christian nest. Fly. (laughs) Ah! I don't want to. Too late. He pushes the saints out of the nest, out of the Christian bubble, causing us to relate to those who are very unlike us. And it's uncomfortable when the Spirit comes and does that. We like when he makes our services meaningful, but he doesn't, he's not content with that. You know? We had great church today. <laughs> okay. It's probably those times when we're like, oh, that he says, we had great church today. <laughs> we, wait, it's, it's Tuesday morning. We didn't even have a meeting. <laughs> it's like, oh, you people. The Spirit comes to recreate a new humanity around the right center. This is a sidebar. I want to give you a quick sidebar on Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, we see that the people all gathered with one language and one purpose to make a huge monument as a name for themselves in their pride and fear, their fear of being irrelevant and their pride about what they were able to accomplish. It says, God said, I'm going to have to go down and investigate, which is humorous, this tower reaching to the heavens, but God has to go down and put on his spectacles to even see it. That's humor right there. It's Old Testament humor. And God goes down and what he does, since he hates what they're gathering around as an act of mercy because he loves them, to keep them from putting their heart and their trust in something that will not bring them life, he miraculously gives them languages. 
not to enable communication, but rather to frustrate communication. And in fact, they get divided and then they spread all over the ends of the earth. I hope you're seeing parallels already. In Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel, they say, let's make a name for ourselves. In Pentecost, the spirit is poured out to make a name for Jesus, to exalt the name Jesus and to empower the church to, be, to bear witness to the power of the name Jesus. In Genesis 11, the miraculous languages are given to frustrate communication. In Acts chapter 2, the miraculous languages are given to enable communication. In Genesis 11, it says that there's one language, which typically that should spark your mind and say, oh, there's an empire. At the time of Jesus, remember how they all spoke what? Greek? Why is that? Because Alexander the Great dominated every other culture and said, now you're mine. Empire. So the only unity that they understood in the ancient world was uniformity. And here's Jesus. Not building unity through uniformity, but building one people while retaining the cultural diversity of it. That's huge. So enslaved uniformity in Babel, but free egalitarian unity with diversity in Pentecost. In Babel, they gathered around pride and, inf- and fear. In Pentecost, they gathered around hope and love. In Babel, God humbled them in order to save them. And in Pentecost, they humbled themselves and God exalted them. By the way, prayer is always an act of humility. Paul says, for this reason I kneel before the Father. What does he mean? For this reason I pray. So for Paul, kneeling and prayer, humility is, every act of prayer is, is a rejection of pride. In Babel, one nation was gathered in idolatry. In Pentecost, the true Israel is being composed in the worship of the true Messiah. In Babel, there was the gathering against the grain of God's command to scatter and fill the earth. So he says, fill the earth and subdue it. And instead, they gather in one place. In Pentecost, he empowers them in order that they scatter to fulfill that ancient mandate that Adam and Eve are meant to be image bearers of God. And and they're supposed to fill the earth, multiply, and they're supposed to tend and cultivate the ground so that Just like the Garden of Eden is a cultivated space where God's lordship is revealed through Adam and Eve's lordship, they were meant to grow and fill the earth until the whole earth was an expression of God's lordship under the authority of his delegated representatives. That was the original ancient mandate. And now through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we're empowered to disciple the nations to fulfill this ancient Genesis 1 mandate. There I said it. That was your sidebar. All that is me trying to say that the Spirit of God ignores cultural walls of division. And he goes wherever love wants. He tears down every wall of hostility while preserving diversity, which is a brand new kind of unity that humanity is not really, still to this day, not very comfortable with. To this day, we're not, we're, we, need, we still need upgrades in our thinking and in our living. The Spirit brings boldness. 
Peter just fled and denied Jesus multiple times. Now on this day, after being reinstated with these love encounters with restoration with Jesus, but now filled with power from on high, he says, Jesus says, don't just get started. Wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. What does this mean to be clothed? Well, if you've ever had the nightmare about being in middle school or high school or in the, I guess they don't have these anymore, but shopping malls are becoming less popular, but the nightmare of being like in your underwear in the school cafeteria, like giving a speech, you know? Like my nightmare is like, there's a conference with 5,000 people and no one told me that I was on next to preach and somehow I'm in my underwear, you know? And everyone hates me as well, so. Also, I'm smoking a cigarette just so I can also feel like a sinner and, and dirty. Like, just in my brain, my brain's mean. Then I wake up going, oh, it wasn't real. Oh, man, it wasn't real. <laughs> oh, I need a sozo. Um, but if you've, if you've ever felt so completely powerless in front of what people think about you, if you've ever been in front of other people and you've been like, felt so vulnerable to the depths that all they had to do was make a face of contempt and you would just crumble, then you know the need for the filling of the Holy Spirit that brings boldness. Because that's what it means to be clothed with power. It means to have such a shielding around you in God's love and clarity of purpose that you could stand an army with, with rifles trained on your head and you would say, he's good, he loves you, just take your shot, who even cares? It's why I crave your prayers as I preach. Because I know the feeling of being empty and standing there in the weakness of my flesh, and I know the feeling of being clothed with power so that I don't care if you like me or not, I love you. But there have been times when they told me, stop going to those meetings to seek the Holy Spirit. But if I didn't go, I wouldn't have been able to withstand the bitterness of gravity, of being slandered and judged and resisted and dishonored and criticized I wouldn't have been able to withstand that and stand here with love in my heart and joy in the gospel and invite people to the feast of his love without going to those very places. They said, don't you do it, don't you do it, don't you take our church down this Pentecostal path. And the whole time, all I wanted was to invite people to experience love because that's what Pentecost is about. It's the spirit that makes this message more than a message. It makes it an experienced reality from which we live. So I kept going back saying, Lord, if you don't fill me with your Holy Spirit, I'm going to get bitter and I'm not going to be able to love. And he did. And I didn't. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to persevere because we will be all right, that's a bigger word than persecution, all right? We will face difficulty. Anyone who genuinely has a call from God will have to endure hardship. And if we aren't baptized over and over and over and over along the way with the Holy Spirit, we won't make it. We won't make it faithful. We won't make it with fruit. We won't make it with hope. We won't make it with joy. We might make it, but we won't make it well. So the Spirit comes to bring boldness. And the Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 just the way he does 
in 2 Chronicles 7 when Solomon dedicates the temple and then he prays and then it says fire came from heaven. The presence of God fell, the glory of God fell, the literal fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifices and then the glory filled the temple and no one was physically capable of standing up. No one could stand. The priests could not physically remain standing because the glory had... And why? What is the point? It's God's yes. Will you accept this as your temple, this as your dwelling place? It was God's yes. The spirit poured out in Pentecost is God's yes to the acceptance of this temple, you, this dwelling place, you, for his fire to come, for his presence to indwell and never leave. It is the yes of God that the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus has been, has been accepted, that the lordship, the high priesthood functioning right now has been accepted, and the spirit is poured out to say the church has been accepted as the real temple, filled, not made by human hands, not filled with little boxes with symbols, but filled with the realities those things image. Is that a good day? That's a good day. And I've already said this, but repeated, the Holy Spirit comes to make the objective content of the gospel true in our experience. Romans 5, 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit means to be, to be filled with love. The dominant message of it is not, hey, brother, did you speak in tongues? I, I, got, I have real problems with that idea, that if you don't speak in tongues, you aren't baptized in the Spirit. Because I know people who speak in tongues but clearly aren't baptized in the Spirit. And I know people who don't speak in tongues who clearly are baptized in the Spirit. The issue is, are you filled with God's love? Are you filled to overflowing with God's love? Love, that's the issue. I should probably finish up. Yeah, good, well, yeah, we're about done, so that's, I uh, should probably finish up. <laughs> this verse is huge for me, Romans 8, verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you don't have the Spirit of Jesus, you probably don't belong to him yet. That's Romans eight fifteen, I think. That's a huge verse, what does it mean? We're no longer regulated by laws. We're regulated by this spirit. We're no longer regulated by church leaders. We're regulated by this spirit. We no longer have me human mediators and, and we, we, prophecy functions totally different. Priesthood functions totally different. Worship functions totally different. The law functions totally different. Everything has flipped upside down in this covenant that we are in. And if you're led by the Spirit of God, you're a son of God and a daughter, or a daughter of God. And we, which means we have to completely unlearn some of the things that many of us have learned. We've learned to live law first, rule first. We need to learn to live relationship first to where if my heart says, God's calling me here, but there's not a Bible verse about it, I do this. See, guys, and I know I talk about this a lot, but like, First time when I got saved and I smoked pot, I never did it again, not because some Christians read me Bible verses, but because it messed with that connection that had just been born, and I said, nah, never again, and I didn't. 
But if I had gotten rooted in religion, it would have been three people quoting Greek Bible verses and Hebrew Bible verses to tell me this is what I should do. So now something outside of me is telling me what I should do when what I'm meant to do is have God, my relationship with God from the inside out, lead me into a place of perfectly being in his will for me rather than generically being in a place that's probably better than just plain flesh. And so now to this day, churches are really bad at accepting the diversity of who God has given us and how God has wired us because we still tend to be cookie cutter factories of uniformity, deciding for ourselves what everyone's supposed to look, act, think like, drink or not drink, go or not, or Christian homeschooled, public schooled, or whatever the issue is. We're just so addicted in our insecurity to uniformity that we're confused by the real gospel. That's enough. Pentecost, a real big deal. I remember one of the first years I got here, I was like, man, I'm going to preach on Pentecost. Spirit of God's going to come down and blow the roof off this joint. I think I fasted and prayed, and because I fasted, I felt horrible, had no energy. My brain was fuzzy, but I was like, yes, Lord. And I got up here and I preached my heart out. And I looked out and it was like yawning, sleeping, crickets. Someone almost snored. There was a chair. There was like a pew sitting over there at that point. I got so frustrated halfway through my sermon, I just sat down and kept preaching. And at the end, I was like, anyway, the end. thought about that on my way over here this morning and I was like, Tim, just, just, preach, just preach the truth. Stop worrying about what happens or doesn't happen Sunday morning. The issue is if we, can, if we can get hungry, we can shape eternity from the privacy of our relationship with God with, with no fanfare, no big movement, no signs. See, Abraham had some encounters with God in secret and he shaped the course of human history. His whole life, he never got the things that God promised him. A lot of our problem is that some of us think that when we set ourselves to serve God, if it doesn't look the way we want it to look, it's somebody's fault. If it doesn't happen now and if it doesn't happen fast, it's somebody's fault. And if I'm not happy, it's somebody's fault. It's probably not mine. It's probably yours or his or the pastor's or Anthony's for not leading worship the right way. Or It's somebody's fault. But we can shape the course of human history from the privacy of our relationship with God and very little outward evidence of that, but faithfulness in the midst of that. Do you know Martin Luther King Jr., the uh, civil rights activist, dealt with depression his whole life? Nearly tried, he tried to kill himself a couple times as a little kid, and he was always frustrated and feeling like quitting. Do you know that? And one day, he said, I can't do it anymore, God, I can't do it can't do it. He had death threats and his, you know, lady came up to him and I mean, people get phone calls. Well, you blankety blank, blankety blank. I'm going to kill you. If I next time I see you, we're going to put a bomb in your car. We're going to do this. We're going to murder your wife and kids in front of you. Blah, 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 blah. Dad came down, said, please stop, Martin. Just stop. Come back and just be a regular pastor. One night he said, God, I can't. Oh, I'll finish the other half. I started a sentence. One lady come up to him and said, are you the Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King? You're the Dr. King that I've, yes, I am. Stabbed him right here with a letter opener. It stuck all the way in. Cops came. People arrested her off of him. Cops came, took her. 
He goes to the hospital with this handle sticking out of him. The doctor said, We're, you are lucky you didn't sneeze. Because if you had just sneezed, it, it was already starting to cut your aorta. Or what, I don't know. I'm not a medical person. Seems like a bad thing to cut. Isn't that the big one that like, shoop, squirt, squirt, now you're done. And one night he just said, God, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. I'm done. I quit. I got nothing. Shoot, that sounds like Moses. That sounds like Elijah. That sounds like, I imagine, like, sounds like I imagine Joseph in prison twice. You know what I mean? I just, it sounds, like, it sounds like Jeremiah down in a well. I got nothing. I'm done. I can't do it. What you call me to is too hard. People hate me. They don't want to hear this truth. Pick someone else. This is stupid. God says to him, Martin Luther, calls him his name. Martin Luther, I have called you to speak for justice and righteousness, and I will be with you, even to the ending of the world. He claims he's not sure if he was saved before that. Uh, People often don't know when they got saved. What I really hear him saying is, before that, I was doing what I thought was right. After that, I knew for a fact that I was doing what God created and called me to do, and he would be with me and for me. Now, you know he got murdered, and he knew he would. The reason the Spirit of God is not optional but required is because we have a huge, hard task, and we will suffer. We will suffer. We will have setbacks. We will be slandered. We will be misunderstood. We will be opposed, but it's going to be glorious, and it's going to be worth it.